Hello and welcome to another episode of Damn Interesting Week. We are so glad you've joined us this morning. My name is Jennifer Lee Noonan. I'm Angela Epley. I'm Whisper Chen. And this was a Damn Interesting Week. So let's get started with our first link. First link. Are you all familiar with encrypted or privacy apps like Telegram or Signal? I've heard yeah, of Signal. Signal. Oh, <laughs> okay. Well, that company in particular, Signal, just tried to run the most honest Facebook ad campaign ever and immediately got banned, according to Gizmodo. Oh. Huh. <laughs> to be fair, these were a series of Instagram ads, but we all know that Instagram is owned by Facebook now. Mm -hmm. And obviously, Signal is a privacy positive platform. But the ads were booted in part because it targeted users using Instagram's own ad tech tools and the ads made very transparent what those data privacy points were. So for example, they had an ad that said, you got this ad because you're a newlywed Pilates instructor and you're cartoon crazy. Huh. Wow. <laughs> so it was a super simple campaign idea, right? So yeah. because Instagram and Facebook share the same ad platform, any data that gets sucked up while you're scrolling Insta or Facebook feeds, it gets fed into the same, well, Gizmodo uses the word cesspool of data, <laughs> which can be used to target you on either platform. And so across mm. these platforms, you can also target people using basic details like age, what city you might live in, but also granular stuff like whether you're looking for a new home, whether you're single or whether you're really into energy drinks. A hmm. couple of other ones were, you got this ad because you're a K-pop loving chemical engineer. This ad used your location <laughs> to see you're in Berlin and you have a new baby and just moved. And you're really feeling those pregnancy exercises lately. Wow. wow. Super specific. You got this ad because you're a teacher, but more importantly, you're a Leo and single. This uh. ad used your location to see you're in Moscow and you like to support sketch comedy and this ad thinks you do drag. So it gets into <laughs> these super, you know, minute data things. And they, you know, if an ad was targeted towards London-based divorcees with degrees in art history, the ad said so. <laughs> but Facebook was not a fan of this sort of transparency into its system. So mm -hmm. while the company hasn't yet responded to Gizmodo's request for comment, Signal's blog post says the ad account used to run these ads was shut down before the ads could reach the target audiences. And then according to an update in response to Signal's blog, where they kind of made transparent this attempt and then cancellation, Facebook denied that it suspended Signal's account for running the ads and accused the organization of pulling a PR stunt. Uh, so according to Facebook, they said this is a stunt by Signal, who never even tried to actually run these ads, and we didn't shut down their ad account for trying so. So if Signal had tried to run the ads, according to Facebook, a couple of them would have been rejected because their advertising policies prohibit ads that assert you have a specific medical condition or sexual orientation, as Signal should know. <laughs> In response to that, Signal said on Twitter, we absolutely did try to run these ads. These are real screenshots, as Facebook should know. So uh, <laughs> getting a little hot. If you want to follow that, I'm sure you can uh, check out social media and see what kind of barbs they're trading. But I think a lot of this is kind of piling on with that iOS update that requires users to opt in mm -hmm. to ad tracking, which has basically resulted, I want to say I saw an article that said something like only 4% of global users have opted in 
in. Yeah. I mean, that's the thing is most people, it's just a lack of awareness, which makes is what makes this so great from Signal because people don't really understand how much they know about you. And exactly. And by making it transparent by saying, hey, this is the stuff we toggled and this is what we think we know about you because of this. Yeah. And if you have a Facebook account, I do recommend you set up an ad account because it's free. You don't need to run any ads before you get access to the demographic profiling options in the ad manager. Mm -hmm. Uh, I've run a couple ads and it is insane. Like it is exactly as deep as all those signal ads say. Yeah. It's a little disturbing. Oh, yeah. Very disturbing. (laughs) (laughs) This ad thinks that you find it moderately disturbing. (laughs) (laughs) Next link. Next Next link. link. This article comes to us from sciencemag.org. Nuclear reactions are smoldering again at Chernobyl. Oh, no. Ruh-roh. So 35 years after the Chernobyl nuclear plant in Ukraine exploded in the world's worst nuclear accident, fission reactions are smoldering again in uranium fuel masses buried deep inside a mangled reactor hall. When part of the Unit 4's reactor's core melted down, uranium fuel rods, their zirconium cladding, graphite control rods, and sand dumped on the core to try to extinguish the fire, melted together into a lava. It then flowed into the reactor hull's basement rooms and hardened into formations called FCMs, which are laden with about 170 tons of irradiated uranium, or 95% of the original fuel. The concrete and steel sarcophagus called the shelter, erected one year after the accident to house Unit 4's remains, allowed rainwater to seep in. And because water slows or moderates neutrons and thus enhances the odds of striking and splitting uranium nuclei, heavy rains would sometimes send those neutron counts soaring. After a downpour in June 1990, a stalker, or a scientist at Chernobyl who risks radiation exposure to venture into the damaged reactor hall, dashed in and sprayed a gadolinium nitrate solution, which absorbs neutrons, on an FCM that he and his colleagues feared might go critical. Several years later, the plant installed gadolinium nitrate sprinklers in the shelter's roof, but the spray cannot effectively penetrate some basement rooms. Wow. Chernobyl officials presumed any criticality risk would fade when the massive new safe confinement, or NSC, was slid over the shelter in November 2016. And ever since its emplacement, neutron counts in most areas in the shelter have been stable or are declining. But they began to edge up in a few spots, nearly doubling over four years in room 305-2, which contains tons of FCMs buried under debris. ISPNPP modeling suggests the drying of the fuel is somehow making neutrons ricocheting through it more rather than less effective at splitting uranium nuclei. Wait, so it can't get wet and it can't get too dry. Yeah, it seems like there's this kind of middle spot. It's messed up. (sighs) But the threat cannot be ignored. As water continues to recede, the fear is that the fission reaction accelerates exponentially leading to an uncontrolled release of nuclear energy, uh, okay. which is a euphemism. Yeah, it's going to blow up. Yeah. So addressing the newly unmasked threat is a daunting challenge. Mm-hmm. Radiation levels in 305-2 preclude getting close enough to install sensors, and spraying gadolinium nitrate is not an option as it's entombed under concrete. One idea is to develop a robot that can withstand the intense radiation for long enough to drill holes in the FCMs and insert boron cylinders, which would function like control rods and sop up neutrons. 
So <laughs> the resurgent fission reactions are not the only challenge facing Chernobyl's keepers either. Besieged by intense radiation and high humidity, the FSAMs are disintegrating, spawning even more radioactive dust that complicates plans to dismantle the shelter. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Early on, an FCM formation called the Elephant's Foot was so hard, mm. scientists had to use a Kalashnikov rifle to shear off a chunk for analysis, uh, which is perhaps <laughs> one of the most Russian sentences I've ever read in my life. Right. But, I know, right? <laughs> anyways, so Ukraine has long intended to remove the FCMs and store them in a geological repository. And by September, with help from the European Bank for Reconstruction and Development, it aims to have a comprehensive plan for doing so. But with life still flickering within the shelter, it may be harder than ever to bury the reactor's restless remains. Yeah. <laughs> this is one of those things where it's about the only excuse you might have to just say, shoot it into space. Like, you know, yeah. if you've got somebody running in there with a squirt bottle, spraying chemicals on it and running out again, it feels like you, you don't have actual solutions. You're just yeah. right, You're right. You're not really in control of that situation. Yeah. And the messed up thing is that it's probably too big to really shoot into space or to pull pieces out right. and handle on its own. Like, you would have to launch part of the Earth into space, I right. guess, which, I don't, you know, <laughs> whatever. Seems um, like a bad idea, but, you know, so does Chernobyl melting down again so sure yeah. yeah speaking of chernobyl if you have not seen the limited series oh. chernobyl it's incredible and definitely worth a watch honestly it's I, gloomy yeah i started watching it and i just couldn't like i it was really good it was very well done but i was like i just can't emotionally handle watching this right now it's awful yeah me yeah, neither it's super intense like if i'm gonna have to learn or immerse myself in a narrative about tragedy if there's not some kind of resolution at the end, right, I'm right. out because we, our current reality <laughs> is too close to that. We, we need happy yeah. endings. Or just an yeah. ending. Like the bar is so low right now. I right. will take any closure over happy closure. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, like, <laughs> can something just be done? For right. Once? right. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> well, with that being said, next link. <laughs> next link. link. All right, well, this one comes from David Ferrier at the BBC, and it's called How Cities Will Fossilize, which actually has taken on a very grim meaning now with that past article, but uh -huh. we're going to push through it. Uh, <laughs> this one, it takes sort of a geologist's look at what aspects of our cities are going to be lost to time and erosion and what's likely going to stick around as evidence of our once great civilization. And it's not even being super apocalyptic or anything. It's just saying, look, even if humans are still around and thriving, our urban centers are inevitably going to shift due to basic geological and sociological processes. And that means mm -hmm. in several thousand years, we may be unearthing the vast ancient city of New York, just like we're uncovering the ruins of Mayan cities today. Whoa. So what is it going to look like when we do? Well, according to Jan Zalasiewicz, emeritus professor of paleobiology at the University of Leicester, the three key factors for the preservation of anything are durability, abundance, and location. Mm. In terms of durability, we're not actually doing so great. We live in a disposable age, and while some plastics obviously last a long time, much longer than we'd like, actually, mm -hmm. most of our structural stuff is the weakest it's ever been. Oh, good. Yeah. <laughs> the majority <laughs> of buildings in modern cities are only designed to last for about 60 years without significant upgrades or repairs. And that's by choice. We could make them more sturdy, but we're like, look, we want to remodel all the time, so why would we make it last longer? Mm -hmm. That being said, we more than make up for it with abundance. So 300 years ago, there was only one city in the world with a population of one million, namely Edo or modern-day Tokyo. Today, there are over 500, 
And our mega cities like Tokyo have as many as 37 million residents. And that basically gives us a lot of shots at the fossilization lottery, so to speak. Because it's like, mm-hmm. not every woolly mammoth is going to fall into the La Brea tar pits and get perfectly preserved, but the bigger the mammoth population, the more likely we're going to get to keep one. Right. And so what that means is that ultimately, like all fossils, it comes down to location. So a city like Manchester in the UK, which is situated on ground that is, tectonically speaking, still rising since the last ice age, is going to erode completely over time. As the article says, washing a trail of concrete and plastic particles out into the Irish Sea. But cities that are built on coastal plains or near river deltas are sinking. And those are the ones that are going to get buried and preserved. A notable example of this includes the city of Shanghai, where human activity is accelerating the natural sinking process. Since 1900, Shanghai has sunk down by around 8 feet due to groundwater extraction and the weight of its buildings pressing into the marshy soil. Yikes. And that doesn't even factor in sea levels rising. Oh, good. Like, Shanghai's gonna go. (laughs) (laughs) Of course, as the author notes, Shanghai is going to be vigorously defended against the incoming ocean, and they've already built some 320 miles of seawall to keep the city dry. But eventually they are going to lose, because as Zalasevich says, deltas sink. That's what deltas do. Mm -hmm. So we say a couple hundred years, give or take, for Shanghai to grow unsustainable as a major city. They say the wealthy will flee first and buildings closest to the coastline will stop being maintained and start to be abandoned. People will probably strip the buildings of anything valuable as they migrate away, so you're left with mostly concrete and iron. A tall building like Shanghai Tower is going to start to crumble within that 60-year time frame. And within another two to three hundred years, you're looking at just one or two stories still standing, surrounded by the rubble of the rest. That is spooky. Yeah, isn't it? And, you know, I'm going to be dead, but they're talking four to six hundred years. That's crazy. Yeah. Well, I mean, like in fifteen hundred years, Shanghai will be like Atlantis (laughs) 2.0. Yeah. And that's sort of the point of all of this. They're like, you know, humanity's not going to go but we are going to move. And these coastal yeah. cities are just, they're going to end one way or the other. Yep. So here's the key. The slow movement of water can erode anything, even the Grand Canyon. But if mm-hmm. and when a storm brings in massive flooding, it also washes in huge quantities of mud and sediment that stay there when the water recedes. And if no one's around to clean mm. it up, that's what's going to form the urban equivalent of the La Brea Tar Pits in these Delta cities. In the case of Shanghai, there's also the possibility of instantaneous permanent flooding when the Three Gorges Dam fails further up the Yangtze River. So our sediment has flooded in. Now what? Well, aside from the lowest couple of stories from the major concrete structures, we also have a number of subsurface levels. Shanghai Tower goes five stories underground, including shops and restaurants and a parking garage. Once those fill with ocean water, you're going to see chemical reactions with the calcareous material in the concrete to form cathalmites, which are a special kind of stalagmites and stalactites that form when concrete sits underwater for any period of time. Meanwhile, some of the iron that's exposed to the water, including like rebar and broken concrete, but also, you know, maybe a car chassis or even the stainless steel countertops in the restaurant kitchens, that may start to react with the sulfides in the ocean water to form pyrite or fool's gold. Mm. The article has a cute little image of like, maybe you'll have a perfectly preserved kitchen structure all in fool's gold. (laughs) (laughs) But more likely, the open spaces are going to collapse. But you will still get these relatively dense collections of pyrite that you won't find in the ruins of less urban areas. And that's going to give future geologists a clue that there used to be a city there with a lot of stainless steel and iron in it. Mm Mm-hmm. 
Meanwhile, sheets of aluminum in the HVAC ducts are going to bond with silicates to form something called China clay, which is known for creating really excellent fossil impressions. It's going to take a while, but anything plastic that's left down in that building is going to last a while too, until in about 100,000 years, you're going to have hardened shale with a perfectly formed impression of maybe an old spatula or a broken hair clip or the whole dashboard of a junked out car. It just depends on what's still down there when we really abandon the place. Hmm. And all of this stuff is going to stay real deep for a real long time. But after around 100 million years, the plates are going to shift enough that the Shanghai Delta may start to rise again, pushing all these fossils to the surface. And anybody with our current level of geologic knowledge, whether it's humanity's descendants or aliens popping in long after we're gone, is going to find a treasure trove of information. According to the author, fossilized bicycles or rubber boots would indicate that we were bipedal. A plastic keyboard would suggest the shape of our hands. And mannequins from a clothing store could even show that we were sexually dimorphic, which I'm not buying that one because mannequins are smooth. (laughs) (laughs) That's not going to give as much information as he thinks. Yeah, but the smooth lumps are not evenly distributed across all mannequins. (laughs) That's true. The lumps are different. (laughs) Oh, no. (laughs) Next link. Next Next link. link. All right. Well, hot on the heels of talking about shifting boundaries, a little bit more of a lighthearted take, also from the (laughs) BBC, reports that a Belgian farmer accidentally moved the French border. Okay. Oh, boy. (laughs) (laughs) How does one move a border? Well, to be fair, a Belgian farmer who was apparently annoyed by a large stone in his tractor's path moved it about seven and a half feet out of the way. Turns out that was a stone that had been marking the boundary between the two countries. (laughs) And it was established under the Treaty of Kortrijk, signed in 1820 after Napoleon's defeat at Waterloo five years earlier. The good news is, instead of causing international uproar, the incident has been met with smiles on both sides of the border. Quote, I was happy my town was bigger, said the mayor of the Belgian village of Urkeline. But the mayor of boussigny sur roc did not agree. <laughs> the local Belgian authorities do plan to contact the farmer to ask him to return the stone to its original location, pretty please. And uh, if that does not happen, the case could end up at the Belgian Foreign Ministry, which would have to summon a Franco-Belgian border commission, which has what? actually been dormant since 1930. <laughs> yeah, why can't they just say the border is where it is? Why does it have to stay imbued in this rock? That's you know, easy for us to say as this young juvenile upstart country America, but they did note that the farmer could face criminal charges if he fails to comply. Quote, if he shows goodwill, we will settle this issue amicably. I mean, to be (laughs) fair, all he's got to do is move a rock back seven and a half feet. Yeah. I mean, I'm just still mind boggled at the low techness of it. Like we have (laughs) GPS satellites that can tell you exactly down to the foot where something is on the planet. But no, we're relying on a rock that they stuck there in the 1820s. And it's like, no, there's nothing we can do. The rock is the border. That's it. Got to update all Google Maps now. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Next link. Next Next link. link. This article comes to us from Wired.com. And it's titled, Sharks Use the Earth's Magnetic Field Like a Compass. Ooh. Yeah. Every year, great white sharks travel over 12,000 miles from South Africa to Australia, charting a nearly perfect straight line across the ocean. 
Currents and water temperatures change, the sun sets at night, the stars disappear during the day, and yet the sharks carry on. So for decades, scientists have speculated that sharks must be using the Earth's magnetic field as a sort of atlas, but it was hard to prove because sharks are notoriously difficult to study. Brian Keller, a researcher at the Florida State University Coastal and Marine Laboratory, had to build an apparatus that could mimic specific magnetic fields. He constructed a 10-foot wooden cube with a large tank at the center, then he coiled over a mile of copper wiring around the cube at precise intervals. Mm. And when connected to power, the copper conducted electrical current and created a magnetic field. Mm -hmm. By adjusting the power, Keller could create a stronger or weaker field, mimicking specific conditions the sharks might encounter in the ocean. This method has also been used to study other animals like sea turtles, and Keller, the study's lead author, says the scientists already knew that sharks are capable of detecting magnetic fields. But, he says, this is the first instance where it's shown that they use that ability to infer location. Neat. Yeah. The cube's magnetic field was much too small to track the movements of famous navigators like the Great White. So in order to study these animals with this methodology, we needed a shark that was small, but was still migratory. He opted for 20 wild juvenile bonnet heads, each under two feet long. Hmm. Aww. Keller tested the bonnet heads in three artificially generated magnetic fields. One mimicked the angle and strength of the one they'd naturally encounter in their Florida home. One was like the field they'd encounter 600 kilometers south along their normal migratory route. And another was like 600 kilometers north in Tennessee, a place where the sharks have never been. <laughs> you know, those famous oceans in Tennessee. They're like <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so the field from their home area didn't elicit any specific response from the animals. Similarly, when they were exposed to the field mimicking the northern location, the bonnet heads didn't react. But when they were exposed to the magnetic field like the one they'd find 600 kilometers south, they consistently oriented themselves with their heads pointing north. Yet, exactly how any animal senses magnetic fields remains a real mystery. One theory is that they have magnetite crystals, which sense true north, embedded somewhere in their brains or nervous systems. Hmm. Another is that magnetic fields affect receptors in their visual systems, superimposing colors or light patterns of their vision like an augmented reality headset. Perhaps north appears as a reddish tint and an animal simply follows that color. Sharks also have pores in their snouts filled with ampullae of Lorenzini, which detects electrical currents in the water, and perhaps these receptors also sense magnetic fields or pick up on them indirectly by noticing how they interact with electrical currents. Hmm. And it's something that's particularly important to understand as offshore wind farms become more popular, which may disrupt these fields. Mm. Turbines turn energy from the wind into power that's conducted back to shore through underwater cables. And just as Keller's cube used power to mimic the Earth's magnetic field, power cables underwater also create their own little magnetic fields in the ocean. Hmm. It's not clear yet whether any disruptions are actually happening, but he feels people need to study the possibility so that we don't end up derailing these important migrations. Yeah. Well, that's not going to motivate a lot of people because they're going to be like, who cares about the sharks? But if you tell people that your wind farms are going to be constantly under shark attack, if you don't, <laughs> you know, keep them from being disruptive, mm -hmm. that I think at least will get somebody's attention. Yeah, absolutely. Or spawn another side industry of underwater shark hunting. <laughs> That's right. Little submarines with harpoons. 
awful. <laughs> I like to think that these new underwater power lines just end up being kind of like new signposts for sharks where they're like, oh, yeah, that helps me know this area even better. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Atlantis wasn't an ancient thing. It was just future nostalgia. That's right. Future tech. Exactly. It was a prediction. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I mean, that is a very common uh, conspiracy theory about Atlantis. So, yeah, we are right oh, in no, the realm really? right now. <laughs> <laughs> oh no, I didn't mean to give it any credence. I was making a joke. Nope, it's too it's late. All good. It's already a joke. It's fine. <laughs> all right. Next link. Next, next link. link. All right. Well, I think it's fair to say that we're all getting older and none of us like it, right? Yep. And while we're nowhere near a solution to the problem, this next article from The Atlantic gives us a little bit of an overview of what the animal world can teach us about longevity. And there's a little bit of a paradox here because the vast majority of scientific studies are done on fruit flies, nematodes, and white mice because they're easy to work with and we know a lot about them genetically. But one of the reasons they're so great for research is that they turn over generations very quickly, which is to say they don't live very long. So up until now, we've mostly been learning about longevity from organisms that are the least successful at it. But... Researchers are finally starting to branch out, and one of the very clear patterns they've found is that larger animals tend to live longer. And this makes sense from an evolutionary standpoint, because if you're a prey animal, chances are good you're going to die from being eaten, not old age. So there's no benefit to putting internal resources toward living longer when statistically you're not gonna. Mm. But predators at the top of the food chain do actually get more out of being healthier for longer. So for them, there's an evolutionary pressure to develop these anti-aging techniques. Mm-hmm. The major exception to the size rule is creatures that can fly. Since they're better at escaping predators, they can manage to live longer lives despite being small. Hmm. Similarly, while a regular mouse only lives two to three years, a naked mole rat, which is about the same size, can live for up to 30. Whoa. And they think that's because mole rats live underground where they're much less likely to be eaten. They also don't look very appetizing if you've ever seen one that's of those. That's true. That's true. Yeah. <laughs> Nobody yeah. wants to eat a mole rat. <laughs> I don't. Mm-mm. But even then, there are some exceptions. So bowhead whales, for example, live for about 200 years, which is twice what you'd expect even for their size. And certain bats have been known to live in the wild for more than 40 years with no signs of aging. What? Yeah. One researcher said that was equivalent to a human living around 250 years while still looking like they were in their 30s. Did they do any research about the bats in particular to note if any vampiric activity could have contributed to the condition? <gasps> they didn't mention that, but mm. it's <laughs> that's definitely an avenue of research that needs mm. to be explored. Mm-hmm. So, you know, the big question, how do they do it? And the answer is actually that different animals seem to do it in different ways. The naked mole rat has, quote, an unusually accurate ribosome, which is the cellular structure responsible for assembling proteins. A mole rat's ribosome makes only about one-tenth of the errors that other animals' ribosomes make. Hmm. Other animals that live longer than they should, such as beavers, seem to have a more powerful version of the SIRT6 gene, which repairs DNA damage. There is also an internal process called methylation, which affects how certain genes are turned on and off as needed. And this process starts to fail sooner in some animals than others. And in fact, checking certain methylation sites is a really reliable way to determine the true age of a creature as a percentage of how long it's expected to live overall. So one geneticist at UCLA, Steve Horvath, said, let's say you go into the jungle and find a new species. I can tell you pretty accurately the maximum lifespan of that species just from the one specimen, regardless of how old it actually is. Wow. 
Messenger RNA can also play a role. Emma Teeling, a bat evolutionary biologist at University College at Dublin, found that while most mammals produce fewer repair-related mRNA molecules as they age, bats actually produce more over time. They basically get better at staying young the older they get. Wow. Yeah. And this article largely is very big on bats. They're like, bats are amazing. They kind of live forever. They might be vampires, like you said, you know? <laughs> well, they've gotten a real bad rap since the coronavirus. So That's I am, true. I'm here for the pro-bat info. That's right. <laughs> Another thing that all long-lived creatures have in common is the ability to stave off cancer. But again, they have different ways of doing it. So elephants have evolved to have two copies of certain anti-cancer genes while the bow whales have better DNA repair pathways to kill the cancer cells after they develop. So it's kind of good news and bad news. On the one hand, there's no miracle answer to aging. But mm -hmm. on the other hand, there are a lot of different ways that we could extend life a little bit, and they might add up if we manage to master all of them. Yeah. Or get bit by a bat. One of the two. You know? It's <laughs> Next link. Next, Next link. link. All right. Well, speaking about extending life or at least repairing things, newatlas.com is pleased to report that ice microneedle patches are a new way to deliver drugs and then melt away. Like the old thing where someone was murdered and there's no murder weapon and they got stabbed by an icicle. <laughs> right that's like <laughs> it may have been inspired by this popular riddle huh. but you know the idea is that microneedle patches exist today and they're designed to be applied to the skin kind of like a band-aid so the skin facing side will have an array of tiny needles which are different than like big hypodermic needles that have to be long enough to reach the vein in your arm right these micro needles are less than one millimeter long, which means they only penetrate a very short distance into the skin and they don't even touch the nerve endings. And so they're virtually painless. Hmm. The needles themselves are made out of these biodegradable polymers that dissolve to release a payload. But for the new study, they made these out of ice. And the principle for these cryo microneedles is pretty much the same, right? Therapeutic cells are loaded into the microneedles. And once the needles enter the skin, they break off the backing patch and the patient's body heat melts them and delivers the payload. It's hmm. kind of elegant, right? Yeah. And using ice has a few advantages over the existing microneedle systems. And the most obvious is that it's a simpler material to make than biodegradable polymers. But they also leave less waste, and the ice can also preserve the cells for long-term cold storage. That said, of course, you have to keep them frozen. So this could be a downside when it comes to shipping and storage. Mm -hmm. Although if you live in the U.S., you can be confidently assured that cost will get passed down to you. <laughs> in tests, the researchers used the cryo microneedles to treat cancer in mice. So they loaded the patches with a form of cancer immunotherapy and found that the immune responses it triggered were better than those from subcutaneous or intravenous injection. Huh. This could also package, store, and deliver other types of bioactive therapeutic agents like proteins, peptides, mRNA, DNA, and vaccines. I had an unfortunate thought just then uh -oh. where these little spikes <laughs> are like a millimeter long, but mm -hmm. mice have fur. So to mm -hmm. get them onto the mice, they had to shave the mice. Yeah, I try not to think too much about <laughs> how the studies are done, especially when it involves other animals, because it is horrific to think about. Well, and it's, it's not, not like the shaving hurts them. I'm just imagine like, 
how embarrassing would that be? Like you're a little mouse and you've got this bald <laughs> patch on your back. Right. <laughs> like, And if it has to be like a vertical stripe from like tip to tail, is it then known as like a reverse rat tail? <laughs> but if you gave one a mohawk, maybe he's cool now. He's a little punk Aww. mouse. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, just move the hair, you know, when you shave it, put it back somewhere else. That's true. Oh, Make oh, him a little oh. mouse toupee. Oh, be yeah, adorable. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> Next link. Next link. This article comes to us from space.com and it's titled Spaghettified Star Wrapped Around a Black Hole Spotted for the First Time. Ooh, mm, spaghettified? So, yes. <laughs> That's not what the headline writer made up. That's a real scientific That's term. That's a real scientific term. Yeah. All right. Good yeah. to know. Well, it's helpful in that it signals to the rest of us that this is still emerging theory. <laughs> that right. the best we could come up with to describe the phenomena is spaghettified. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, the idea is that it basically rips your body apart instantaneously into oh. all these different streams. Okay. Hence spaghetti right um <laughs> for those of y'all who this makes anxious don't worry we're very far away from black holes uh this is all theoretical <laughs> anyways so filaments of a material wrapped around a supermassive black hole have been spotted for the first time suggesting a star trapped by the black hole's gravity has just been destroyed by quote spaghettification <laughs> astronomers believe that the effect takes place because the black hole's gravity pulls more strongly on the side of the star closer to the black hole. And there's a pretty cool visualization on this article I recommend checking out. It's not um, of a human being, right? No, no, it's not. It, it's, you kind of have this little black sphere in the middle, and then off to the side, it's like this star really got ripped up as it described and turned into threads of light that are Ooh. curling around the black hole as it moves toward it. Really, really cool looking. Hmm. Like spaghetti going down a drain. Exactly, yeah. <laughs> okay, all right. That, that's a pretty good way to describe it, except the drain is like in the middle of space. Okay. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so previously, the only evidence of such a situation where a star made a violent demise venturing too close to a galaxy's center came in the form of short bursts of electromagnetic radiation that astronomers occasionally observed emanating from supermassive black holes. In this new study published in the journal Monthly Notices of the Royal Astronomical Society, a team of astronomers from the Netherlands has successfully detected such a spaghettified star in spectral absorption lines around the poles of a distant black hole. These lines appear when material that absorbs part of the electromagnetic radiation, in this case the spaghettified star, obscures the source. The observation suggested that there was a strand of material wrapped multiple times around the black hole like a yarn ball, and the team believes that this material is the torn star as it orbits around the black hole before disappearing inside of it. Giacomo Canizzaro, the lead author of the paper, says the absorption lines are narrow. They are not broadened by the Doppler effect like you'd expect when you would be looking at a rotating disk. Mm -hmm. The researchers also said in the statement that they knew they were facing the black hole's pole because they could detect x-rays. Astronomers can detect black holes thanks to the bright x-rays they emit as they gorge on gas and matter from their surroundings. And stars that orbit in the central parts of galaxies might occasionally wander so close to the black holes that they get trapped by their gravity. And then they get pulled closer and closer to the black hole and eventually die a premature death by spaghettification. <laughs> So if going in is spaghettification, does that mean like our current state is raviolification? <laughs> like we're pre-extruded. Yeah. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> and I mean, you know, wormholes are just tortellinis. That's how it works. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Next link. 
Next link. All right. Well, I have a quick one here. It's sort of an article in video form. It's a little explainer from Vox called Why the U.S. Has Two Different Highway Fonts. And I don't know if you guys have ever noticed this phenomenon, but as a moderately obsessive person, I definitely have, and it's annoyed me. <laughs> yeah. Now that you mention it. Yeah, it looks unprofessional. Is it like even within the same state or same city? Yeah. Oh. Yeah, like if you drive out on I-35 right now, if you pay attention, you will see signs in different fonts from the highway sign you just passed. Oh, no. It's bizarre. I'm never yes. going to unsee this once I see it. <laughs> uh. And, you know, you assume it's just like a conflict between state and national standards, or maybe there isn't a standard. Right. But thanks to this video, now I do know. (laughs) So the original font for road signs is called Highway Gothic, and it was designed in 1948 by the California Department of Transportation with the specific goal, not surprisingly, of being very readable at high speeds. And there are some unusual things about it. The kerning or like the space between the letters in a word is irregular. Like an E and an R are actually closer together than an R and a G. Hmm. And Highway Gothic was the standard for decades. But then, in the 1980s, reflective sign technology became the norm. And this was a great improvement for things like stop signs, where you need to make sure you grab the driver's attention. But when it came to text, they started to notice that people were having problems with halation, where light is scattered unevenly and light-colored items on a dark background appear to get a sort of halo around them. Hmm. And Highway Gothic had been given a very bolded, thick shape to make it stand out during the day. Hmm. But with halation, things like a lowercase a and an e and an o were all blurring into the same unrecognizable blob. Mm -hmm. So they threw science at the problem, and a group of researchers at Penn State University ran a bunch of tests on a real driving course to figure out what was the ideal font for readability both at night and during the day. And they called their result Clearview. It's much thinner. The kerning is spread out even farther. And a lot of letters like the lowercase l now get a little tail to the right or some other extra detail to further distinguish them from other letters. And actually, in testing, it only showed a 16% improvement over Highway Gothic, which doesn't seem like a lot. But they said at speeds of 60 miles per hour, that translates into an extra one to two seconds to read and think about what you're seeing, which, when you're coming up on a sudden exit, can make a difference. Yeah, absolutely. Still, it wasn't until 2004 that the Federal Highway Administration got around to approving Clearview as an option for new signs, and only around 30 states adopted it. So if you're listening to this podcast from, say, Minnesota or Georgia, you're not going to have any idea what we're talking about. (laughs) (laughs) And you never may, because now that they've thrown all these mismatched signs up, more recent studies have called into question the improved readability of Clearview, especially when it comes to their numbering system as opposed to their alphabet. Oh, boy. So today, the FHWA's official position is that either font is acceptable, but they make no recommendation on which is superior. And just to get a quote from an extreme font nerd in here, professional typeface designer Tobias Frere Jones says that on a purely mechanical level, he believes Clearview is more successful, but, quote, there's something very distinctly American about Highway Gothic. (laughs) (laughs) It's a bit blunt and stumbling and loud, and Clearview is almost in that respect too polished. (laughs) So, (laughs) wow, what I I feel triggered. (laughs) You're like, no, clear view here on out. I'm a clear view girl. (laughs) (laughs) All right, well, that is all we have time for. We're so glad you've joined us. Some of the articles we did not have time to get to today include Can Plants Feel Pain? What's the Point of Wasps Anyway? and Minuscule Drums Push the Limits of Quantum Weirdness. 
So all that and more can be found on damninteresting.com. If you like our podcast and want to support us, you can do so at patreon.com slash damninterestingweek. In the meantime, my name is Jennifer Lee Noonan. I'm Angela Epley. I'm Whisper Chen. And we hope you have a damn interesting week. Bye-bye.